whether in Brentwood, Franklin, or online, we are so glad you've joined us today. A special thanks goes to our worship and arts team who've uh, prepared our, our setting as we begin our study through Ezra. This is not, you know, leftover construction we were doing. <laughs> uh, this, is, uh, this is Ezra. This is a story of rebuilding, of restoring. Uh, there is a great work in progress, so to speak, in this book, and that team has enabled us to sit in a room now, and we'll be reminded each week that there's a work going on, and that work is in our own hearts. Well, in order to prepare our, our own hearts for our study of Ezra, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to take your Bibles and open them, not to the book of Ezra, but I'm going to ask you to open to the book of Romans, the book of Romans, and I want you to go to a chapter and verse that you've probably memorized, but you may want to turn there, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This again, in preparation, we're, we're cultivating our own hearts in preparation for this book of Ezra. Here Paul writes these amazing words, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. There is possibly no other Bible verse that has brought more comfort to more Christians in the throes of living life in a fallen world with fallen people, including ourselves, than Romans 8, 28. And yet I, I would suggest that there may be no verse in our Bibles that creates more angst, more tension than Romans 8, 28. For we know this, we hold in one hand the disappointments of life, the injustices, the wrongs, the evils, the hurt, the losses. The We hold it in that hand and then we grab Romans 8, 28 and we, we hold it too. And we are challenged, quite frankly, to believe. Is it true or not? <laughs> Because it makes the audacious promise that every detail in your life and mine is under the watchful eye and hand of a sovereign ruling God who works all things according to his purpose, which we know is for our good and his glory. What an amazing promise. The question is always this. I think it's always rumbling amongst ourselves can I believe it? Will I believe it? And coming out of Ephesians, men and women, it's important for us as a church. You see, we're one body. Will we together believe that promise? Well, the book of Ezra is going to help us a ton. Uh, by his spirit and through his word, I think God can use this story from Israel's past, okay, to bring us in our present to an abiding, I'll call it an unshakable assurance that God is a God who keeps his promise always in every way. And he does it, y'all, through impossibly difficult circumstances. Thus, look up the side screen or your program. You see, this is our theme for Ezra. It's the story of the book, quite frankly, impossibly faithful God. I'm just telling you, 
when it's not impossible and it's going well, you, he's faithful. We, you know, when it's impossible and it's not going well, ooh, is he? Ezra will tell us he is. Now, he's going to do this in a great way. I love the way it's going to happen. It's going to happen because he's going to open the veil of heaven and you and I are going to get to peer in and we're actually going to get to see how God keeps his promises. With that, let's turn to the book of Ezra. Peering into the heavenlies and taking a look at the inner workings of God. How he keeps his promises. I'm going to invite you to stand one more time. I'm going to stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's word to you and to me this day. It's the book of Ezra. And Ezra writes, follow along in your Bibles. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin And the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuables, aside from all that was given as a freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer. And he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400 Shesh Bazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. You can be seated. Thank you. Uh, The book of Ezra opens around 537, 38 B.C., Okay, so the book of Ezra opens over here about 537, 38 BC. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah were one book in the Hebrew Bible. And it makes total sense as I'll describe this. Both those books cover a period of about 100 years. Okay, so we've got about 100 years in Ezra and Nehemiah. In chapters 1 through 6, Zerubbabel takes some of the exiles in Babylon and they go back to Jerusalem. That's chapters 1 through 6. 
in chapters 7 through 10, Ezra shows up. We're not even going to see Ezra for months, for, for a month and a half. He shows up in, ch- in chapter 7. Ezra takes another group, and they go back to reform the people, rebuild the temple, reform the people. There's about a 13-year break, and Nehemiah shows up. And what does Nehemiah rebuild? The walls, okay? So there's that 100 years. Now, I didn't say this, but I'll say it now. In between chapter 7, 6, and chapter 7, there's an 80-year gap. And here goes the story of Esther, okay? So that's our window into Ezra. Now, in order for you and I to get what I would hope God wants us to get from the story, uh, as in any book, we've got to put ourselves in the minds and shoes and the hearts of the original audience. So we can't read this from here. We need to go back and go, what were they feeling? What were their circumstances when the original audience read this? What's going on in their world? And to do that, we've got to do what we've done often here. And that is we need to walk through our Old Testament history. Because the degree to which we can understand what led up to what we just read in Ezra chapter 1, the greater is going to be our capacity to understand and apply and live the hope that comes from the book of Ezra. So just track with me on this. You don't need to take any notes on it. I'm going to, just round, I'm going to use round numbers that will help us, I hope. Um, to understand redemptive history. This is going to be review, and it's good to review these things. Let's go all the way back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have sinned. Mankind was made to be in relationship with God. Adam and Eve said, no, we're going to try it without you, God. They ate the fruit. They rebelled. And mankind and God were separated in the garden. You remember this. And in the midst of that separation, in the midst of those curses and the consequences of that, God said, one day I will send a man born of a woman, and he will crush the serpent's head. Now, that's a little bit vague. And of course, you and I can read the whole New Testament into that and go, yeah, that's Jesus who destroys the devil and his works and makes everything right with God. Absolutely. Well, when he first said that, you know, no one knew that's totally what was coming. You see, redemptive history, men and women, is progressive. It gets clearer as it goes along. We're only in Genesis 3. So God says, I'm going to send a man. Well, go to Genesis 12. And here's where we're going to start using some dates. We are now 1,500 years prior to Ezra. So we're back 1,500 years this side of Ezra. And God calls a man named Abraham. And God says to Abraham, he makes a promise, a covenant. Uh, Through you, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people. And you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. You know, we say it this way, a land, a nation, and he's going to be a blessing. He promised that to Abraham. Now, how in the world is God going to pull that promise off? Well, that's the whole Old Testament, you see. But he doesn't know how God's going to pull that off. Well, I'm going to jump ahead. You know, I'm skipping centuries and eons here, so to speak. But this is 1,500 years before Ezra. If we get over here and we're about 500 years this side, or 1,000 years this side of Ezra, what we realize is, oh my goodness, okay, so Abraham's wife was infertile. How is he going to have a nation? And he begins to have a family. Okay, that family doesn't look like a nation. But in God's unusual ways, you know, Abraham's, you know, ultimately his family goes into Egypt to survive a famine. They end up slaves in Egypt, 400 years. If a family went in, what came out of Egypt? A nation. <laughs> how, about, how, God, how about God using that? A nation came out. We're now talking 2 million people. The nation came out. 
and Moses leads them through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land. 1,500 years before Ezra makes a promise to Abraham. 1,000 years beforehand, Moses brings them out and leads them to the edge of the promised land. And right here as they're getting ready to go into this promised land that was promised to Abraham, Moses says to them, listen, if you do what God says, you'll remain in the land and be prosperous. If you worship other gods, God will remove you from the land. We're 1,000 years before Ezra and all those things. God made that promise. God told him that's what would happen happen. And by the way, he said, when you go in the land, you've got to remain distinct. This is going to be a theme in Ezra. You cannot blend in to all the peoples there because they worship other gods. You must worship me and me alone and remain pure. Now, God had said he's going to bless all the nations. Well, at this stage in redemptive history, in order to bless all the nations, Israel needed to remain pure. Because through Israel was going to come the one that's going to crush the serpent's head. Are you with me? This is redemptive history. 1,500 years, 1,000 years, go forward 500 years. And I'm going to tell you something. Those 500 years did not go very well. It was, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. There were moments of obedience and decades of disobedience in 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 the nation. Move along 500, we're about 500 years this side of the events of Ezra. And God takes a shepherd boy and makes him king. King David. And God uh, reveals a bit more of this promise to Abraham when he says to David, David, through you will come a king who will live forever. Now, again, in our minds, because we live on this side of the cross, we immediately go, that's Jesus. That's the son of God. Indeed it is. But all they had at that point was this king's going to be on the throne forever. And we know, well, that must be, mean he's God. So now we've got the promise to Abraham more fully developed. The Messiah, the Savior, is going to be in the line of King David. Okay, so God says it's going to come through David's line. So it's not coming through any other line, but through David's. And I got to tell you, we're just 500 years this side of Ezra. And what happens between here and Ezra is ugly. Uh, David's family makes the Kardashians look like the Duggars. (laughs) That's the truth. It's actually refreshing to read because you go, I can't believe they did that. And then you look in the mirror and go, my heart's the same. You know, it's just, it was just awful. They did everything, quite frankly, to unwind and to some, you know, it's, it's almost like they were intentionally going, we're going to mess this promise up and make it where God can't keep it. It feels like that. First of all, David, in his own treachery and deceit, it's his own sin. He, you know, plunges, quite frankly, the nation and his family into darkness. When his grandson takes the throne, it's Rehoboam, so his grandson gets on the throne. The nation of Israel's won, but when Rehoboam gets on the throne, he's so arrogant that by his actions, it's like overnight, the one nation, it's now two. See, which we talk about the divided kingdom. So the nation of Israel is now two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom and there's the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, the 10 tribes in the northern kingdom, and then Judah and Benjamin are the southern kingdom. It's a civil war. They're not friendly. They kill each other. They try and conquer each other. Wait, I thought there was one nation. Not anymore. They're two This is not looking good at all. Keep moving toward Ezra, you know, about 500. We're several hundred years this side of it. And an important Bible date is 722, 722. 
Because in 722, Assyria came and destroyed the northern kingdom. Wiped them off. Dispersed them. They're gone. There is no more. The northern kingdom's gone. What did God say a thousand years earlier through Moses? What did he say? If you'll walk in my commandments, you'll stay in the land. If you don't, you will be dispersed. Now we're over here. And sure enough, 722, the Assyrians come. The northern kingdom's gone. Go out in about 150 more years. And the great Babylonians, the most powerful kingdom on the planet, you know what they do? They come along and destroy the southern kingdom. Jerusalem is leveled. And Babylon, they take, you know, some of the choicest Jews, and what do they do? Y'all know your Bible says, they take and they transport them all the way back to Babylon. And we call this in the Bible, the Babylonian captivity. Because now, you know, Judah and Benjamin, they're, they're, they're in Babylon. They're captives in Babylon. This is exactly what God said was going to happen. Now, historians say that this period that we just, right when we started reading in verse 1, that right there, historians will tell us that this is the darkest period in Israel's history. It's the bleakest moment in their history. And I wanted to walk us through this history to help us understand why. Why is it so dark? Why would they be living with so little hope? Let me give you one more, one more date to keep in mind or one more number. And this is a very familiar one to all of us. But when Ezra begins in chapter 1, you know, they took them captive and they took them back to Babylon. And when we start reading in Ezra 1, they have been in this captivity, some of you know this, for how many years? 70. Chapter 1, they've been about 70 years they've been in captivity. And then chapter 1, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Keep, keep that 70 years in your mind because it helps us unlock some of the mysteries of God's ways. Well, if you look at it, you know, I'll look at, I kind of look at things this way. I kind of look back and... I like reading the Old Testament because it's just so gory and messed up and all. I, and I go, I do because I go, because that's my life. I make those choices too. And I'm going to tell you, it seems like they were doing everything they could do to make it impossible for God to keep his promise. You see that? It's all their unfaithfulness. We're, we're not going to let God keep his promise. We're going to screw this whole thing up. It feels like that. And they come to this point in history, and I'm going to give you three reasons why it was so dark. Number one, Jerusalem has been leveled. Men and women, Jerusalem's not just any city. It's the city of God. This is the political center. God promised Abraham a nation. And now, over here in 500 B.C., the, 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 the capital's not there anymore. How can you have a nation without a capital? You can't. They are politically a non-entity. And not only is the... The capital destroyed, but men and women, the temple has been leveled. It's in rubbles. The temple is the center of worship. Worship in the temples, the place where they connected to God. No sacrifices, no temple, no relationship with God. It's gone. Politically, dead in the water. Spiritually, 
No temple, no place to make sacrifices. And then finally, how about the kingly line? Because he promised David, there's gonna be a king that comes literally from your line from, that is gonna live forever. But where are we right now? Where are we right now at the beginning of Ezra? Uh, where's the kingly line? In captivity, in Babylon. It's like three strikes, Israel. You're out. They are no more. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Because if God made this promise to Abraham and he said it would be through the nation of Israel that the Savior comes. Listen, if Israel's gone, can I tell you where, you know, of course we're thousands of years removed, but that means the whole world's in trouble because there can be no Messiah. It's over. If we imagined the promise of God through Abraham being lived all the way out, if we imagined that promise as a lit candle, I'd say this, the flame has been blown out and the smoke's rising, but there's that little ember, right? You know, a little glow on the deal. That's been put out. And then they've taken the candle and set it on the bottom of the ocean. Now keep your promise, God. I mean, it's impossible That's where they were. It's over. From a human perspective, it is impossible right now for God to keep his promise. And I would suggest that some of us sit in this room holding a candle on the bottom of the ocean because life has dealt so difficult a blow to you. You know that you'd go, it's not gonna happen. It's over. Hmm. And then we open Ezra and the veil is open and we peer in and see, oh, is God's promise over? Hardly. Now, there are some themes expressed in the first chapter and I'm only gonna touch on one, maybe two in light of time, but there are themes we're gonna come back to over and over and over again. And that's why I'm gonna hit this pretty quickly. I'm gonna ask you to just ponder it, ponder these things. The first one is this. If you write anything down today, you might write this. History is God at work fulfilling his word. History is God at work fulfilling his word. Arguably the most important statement we'll read in Ezra, I think may be found right here in verse one. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. That phrase, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. What that tells us is everything that happens now, okay? So choices, decisions, circumstances, accidents, all this, see, it's all been caused by, it is God at work, right? To fulfill his word, God has said something and now history is his working out of what he has promised. I want you to keep one finger here in Ezra and I want you to turn over in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. 
You're going to flip to the right, a pretty good chunk, go past Isaiah to Jeremiah chapter 29. One of the things I want you to understand as you flip there is when you flip forward in your Bible this way, I want you to know you're not going forward in time always. The Bible's not put together chronologically. So now we've, oh man, I've gone, you know, 800 pages forward, so I'm 800 years in the future. No, we're not. We flip to Jeremiah and what Jeremiah is going to say right here, Jeremiah said this in the captivity In Babylon, in the midst of those years, Jeremiah writes these words. Jeremiah 29.10, for thus says the Lord, "When, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So God said to them, they're in there, he says, when 70 years, it's gonna be 70 years when 70 years are up. And then that wonderful promise For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. In the midst of their captivity, again, God's word says it's going to be 70 years. And if God's word says it's going to be 70, it's going to be 70 years. Now, Again, I want you to keep your finger in Ezra, but you're going to go backwards now to the book of Isaiah. And I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. And I want you to note what Isaiah prophesies, okay? Listen to what he says. It's fascinating. And by the way, when I read this, I thought this is wonderful just to reflect upon the God in whom we know. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer and the one who formed you from the womb. Verse 24 going on. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things. Listen to these phrases. Stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Causing the omens of boasters to fall. Making fools out of diviners. Causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness. Confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. In other words, when my messenger says something, I perform what I told my messenger to say. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up and I will make your rivers run dry. I'll make your rivers dry. It is I, watch this. It is I who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and the temple of your foundations will be laid. Men and women, God had said, there's gonna be a king, his name's Cyrus. And he's gonna be my servant. I'm gonna use him for my good purposes. He wrote that 175 years before Cyrus made the decree. I mean, Cyrus is not even a twinkle in his mom and dad's eyes. Cyrus is eons away. Who is this God that we worship who speaks and so orchestrates history such that Babylon comes along in God's judgment and wipes out the southern kingdom and takes the Jews in exile to Babylon. And then at the exact moment in history, this is crazy, at the exact moment in history when they would have been in captivity for 70 years, God raises up another pagan king who's more powerful than Babylon and he comes along and he captures Babylon. He looks at the Jews and says, you know what? I want you guys to go back to your homeland. How did this happen? How did it happen? Because God said it would. 
And history is God fulfilling his word. I'm reminded of Proverbs 21.1. I bet I've read it a hundred times, and every time I do, I just smile. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. What's the proverb saying? That the heart of the most powerful man in the land, his heart's like a kid playing in water in the rain. And the water's running down through the mud. And the kid takes his finger and he draws a line in the mud. And the water's diverted and turns another way. That's the heart of the king in the hand of God. God turns the heart of kings. It doesn't have to be a Christian king. He turns the heart of the most powerful in the land to accomplish his good purposes. It's not NATO. It's not Putin. It's not our own president who rules the world. No, no, no. Cyrus's hand released the exiles to go back to Jerusalem. But what was behind Cyrus's hand? The hand of God. Always, you see. The Lord, Ezra says, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus in a way that I can't comprehend. Cyrus did what he did because he wanted to. This is a mystery, y'all. I've got, I'm going to camp with this for a moment. Cyrus did what he did because he wanted to. And he wanted to do what he did because God stirred him to do it. Now let that kind of explode your head for a minute. Did Cyrus free the exiles? Yes, yeah. Did God free the exiles? Yeah. Yes, yes. Concurrently. There's a great mystery here that explains a lot of other stuff we struggle with sometimes in our New Testament men and women. You understand that you understand that God left Cyrus's will intact. It was his choice. But it only served God's will in a way that I can't figure out. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing, it screams, God's in control. Period. Of all things in every way. For his glory and his children's good. History is God at work. Fulfilling his word. Wow. Second theme, I got to say this quickly. What the enemy means for evil, God makes for good. Verses 7 through 11, those utensils and everything. I'm borrowing a phrase from Joseph when he said to his brothers who sold him into slavery, you meant this for evil. But oh, God meant it for good. Listen, what the enemy means for evil, God makes for good. When Nebuchadnezzar came along, okay, so Nebuchadnezzar comes along, Babylon destroys the southern kingdom. When he did that, he took all the utensils of worship and he took them back to his temple and he put them in his temple. This is something that all these guys did. All, all those kings did this. Why? Because when you conquer someone, you want to take their gods who they thought they, you know, who, who, you know, they figure is bigger than your gods. You want to take them out and you want to put them in your God's temple and go, my God is bigger than your God. And literally that's what he did. 
So they go over there and they put those in this temple. Along comes Cyrus, the Persian. See, the Persian empire now swallows up Babylon. Cyrus comes along, he goes, well, he takes the very articles of worship out of the Babylonian temple and he gives them back to the Jews to go back and worship their God. You know, when you read the list, it sounds like a garage sale or something. I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it kind of sounds like it's just utensils. No, it's not. This is what they're gonna worship with. You know how important this stuff is? What did we say before? No worship. No connection to God, no relationship with God. These things really matter. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes him, puts him in his temple, because I'm, I'm, it's Babylon the great. We're stronger than your God, All right? He gets wiped out. The stuff goes back to Jerusalem. And I think of it this way. This is rather silly, but Nebuchadnezzar thought he was superior, thought he was great. And in the hand of of God, we could say this, Nebuchadnezzar was simply running a moving and storage company. Now <laughs> oh, he's a great king. Well, he's just holding God's stuff for him because there's going to come a day when those things are going to be needed by God's people to reconnect and worship God. Huh. And God just used this mighty king to hold his things. Men and women, whatever's in your world, in your life, can we believe oh, it was meant for evil, but God, you see, can redeem it for good because he still does that even today. Let's stand together. As you're standing, would you stand there for just a moment? I'm going to give you 30 seconds and just reflect for a moment. Oh, in light of this history and in light of this place where the candle's on the bottom of the ocean, in light of what Ezra, though, tells us how God has always been at work, tells us he's at work in your world and mine right now. But what does it mean for you to take whatever he said and apply it? So just pause, just think for a minute, Lord, what... What are you calling me to believe and trust? Just pause for a moment and do that. Let me send you out with a hymn from William Cowper. I'd love to read the whole, but I won't. I'll just read two verses. William Cowper wrote a hymn, 1879, about then. And this was a man who knew a lot about loss and, and struggled mightily with depression. He actually came to faith in an insane asylum. You can read about him, wrote a number of hymns. He wrote, uh, God moves in a mysterious way, which the words, all the words would bless you much if you want to read them. But uh, recognizing where we are in Ezra and boy, the, the hardships they face, the captivity, uh, the judgments of God, their enemies crushing them, all of those things. Uh, I've got to believe that Cowper was dipping his ink and dipping his pen in the inkwell of Romans 8.28 as he penned these words. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, 
He hides a smiling face. God bless.